0: the waterline live.
1: We must ensure that lessons are learned and that this crisis provides a watershed moment for health emergency preparedness and for investment in critical 21st century public services and the provision of global public goods. UN Secretary-General Antonio Guterres. We have a framework for action, the 2030 Agenda for Sustainable Development and the Paris Agreement on Climate Change. We must keep our promises for people, and Hello, I'm Jonathan Levy, and this is The Waterline Live, the highly acclaimed international podcast series produced for the Waterline Initiative with Marketing Humber, representing a cross-sector partnership. As you've just heard, despite the huge challenge of the current coronavirus COVID-19 pandemic, the challenge of climate change remains. In this edition of the Waterline Live, we'll be taking stock of the state of the climate and the clear demand for expertise, new technologies and processes of the type being developed here in the Humber region in the UK.
2: 2020 is a very crucial year and this is the moment where the world will come together in addressing the climate emergency that the world is facing
1: right now. Patricia Espinoza is Executive Secretary of the United Nations Framework Convention on climate change better known as the unfccc it was created on the 24th of march 1994.
2: it's a moment where countries need to come with new plans new pledges higher pledges so that we have a better chance of achieving the goals of the Paris Agreement.
1: So where are we, 26 years on, in achieving the UNFCCC, Paris Agreements and Kyoto Protocol's ultimate objective? To safeguard humanity against the impacts of climate change. We have a full report coming up.
3: Since the 1970s, we have lost 75% of the volume of Arctic summer sea ice. We are in trouble.
4: From the year 2000, to 2011, just 11 years, our coal consumption had been tripled, burning half of the world's coal.
5: So I mean we, we really did experience a, an extreme water crisis. You would no longer receive water out of your taps. you would actually have to queue for it.
6: When forest is burning in Australia, in Amazon, it's forests that disappearing. But in my region in Sahel, it's people that die dying because of the climate change.
1: We share one life-giving but fragile planet, and all our futures are intrinsically linked. I'm Luca
7: Parmitano and I'm a European Space Agency astronaut on board the International Space Station. An incredible view also reminds us just how precious and fragile our Earth is.
0: The Waterline live. Join the climate conversation
8: with Jonathan Levy.
1: The Waterline Initiative highlights the vulnerability of the Humber region from rising sea levels, combined with coastal erosion and flooding as a result of tidal surges and periods of high rainfall, with more extreme weather events. It's inevitable that sea levels will continue to rise, but the question is, by how much? If carbon dioxide and other greenhouse gas emissions are not stemmed, and warming exceeds 1.5 degrees Celsius, we could see catastrophic rises in sea level by the end of the century, of several metres. This would mean many low-lying areas, and even whole islands in some parts of the world, could disappear underwater. Climate scientists are closely monitoring rising atmospheric and ocean temperatures, sea chemical composition, changing weather patterns and melting of land ice, particularly in the polar regions. The physical signs of climate change and impacts on our planet have gathered pace, reaching a crescendo in the past five years, which were the hottest on record. That trend is expected to continue, according to the World Meteorological Organization, the WMO. A new global mean temperature record is likely to occur in the next five-year period, and some scientists have indicated there's a high probability of that happening this year, despite the reductions in greenhouse gas emissions resulting from the COVID-19 pandemic shutdown. The WMO have stated that this temporary reduction is not a substitute for sustained climate action. They stated that failure to tackle climate change may threaten human well-being, ecosystems and economies for centuries. Temperature is just one climate indicator. Others include atmospheric carbon dioxide, ocean heat and acidification, sea level, glacier mass balance and Arctic and Antarctic sea ice. All indicators showed an acceleration of climate change in the past five years, according to the WMO's final report on the global climate 2015-2019, released to mark the 50th anniversary of Earth Day in April this year. To discover more, I've been talking to Claire Nollis, the official spokesperson for the UN's World Meteorological Organization from her base in Geneva, Switzerland.
0: The headlines that we are seeing for the past five years is that uh, we've just had the warmest five-year period on record. So 2015 to 2019 was the warmest five-year period on record. Uh, it was the warmest decade on record. And since the 1980s, um, every single decade has been warmer than the, uh, than the than, than the previous one. And it's not just... A case of, of of temperatures temperatures are part of the story um, and at the moment the average global temperature is 1.1 degrees celsius above the pre-industrial era um, now if we are to try to you know, limit the harmful impacts of climate change you know we need to reach a peak uh, keep temperature increase below one point five degrees Celsius by the end of this century. Um, so we are, you know, quite rapidly approaching that uh, that, uh, that that barrier.
1: So although the, the the rise might appear small in some respects, in terms of over such a long period of time, the the, the, the problem is that it's now accelerating much faster.
2: That's right,
0: it is it, it is accelerating. And certainly when it comes to, for instance, sea level rise, uh, the rate of sea level rise has increased and that's because of a number of factors. Uh, in the past, the biggest cause of this was the thermal expansion of water. So when water is warmer, it expands. Um, but now what we've seen in the past five years is that um, a bigger part of the sea level rise equation is now due to the melting of uh, glaciers.
1: Because I guess a lot of the melting in the Arctic has been stuff that's been in the ocean. Uh, so the, the, the net increase hasn't been that much. But now we're seeing ice coming off Greenland and the ice sheets in, in Antarctica as well. That That's probably making a, a big difference.
0: It is making a big difference. And especially um, the potential from the Antarctic Ice sheet. We're seeing some warmer water going underneath some of the, you know, some of the the, the big icebergs um, in in Antarctica, and so that is causing. We call it carving. We've seen some major carving events of icebergs in, in the past couple of years. Um, that's when a big chunk breaks breaks away, and we expect that trend to to, to, to continue. That the potential. For sea level rise from the melting of the Antarctic uh, ice sheet is, is huge. It's not going to happen overnight. You know, it will be over uh, many, many decades and centuries. Um, but if we want to try to control that, you know, we really do have to take action on climate change now.
1: And I guess that becomes um, uh, a rapidly increasing cycle uh, that sort of accelerates as time goes by.
0: Certainly ocean heat, yes. The ocean has a very, very long memory. So the extra heat that it is absorbing now will, you know, continue for many many centuries. And, in fact, the ocean has been acting a little bit as a buffer to protect us, um, you know, as humans on this planet uh, because the ocean has been absorbing more than 90% of the extra heat. Um, It's been protecting... People uh, on the planet, you know, from from higher um, incre- temperature increases, um, you know, than that that uh, we would otherwise see. Uh, so we're seeing, you know, fish populations are uh, migrating further northwards. It's it's impacting that, um, and they're also becoming more acidic. So if you see, you know, the photographs of coral reefs, what used to be very very bright. Uh, dynamic uh, coral reefs in for instance in 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 australia in parts of the tropics you know they are now increasingly becoming bleached and that that is the result of um, warmer water temperatures but also of more ocean acidification which is what we're seeing because of climate change and what's driving all of this is record levels of greenhouse gases so carbon dioxide concentrations in the atmosphere are at record levels, and they continue to be at record levels um, this, this, this year as well.
1: And we'll hear more from Claire later in the podcast. The Humber has a rapidly developing knowledge and skills base, feeding into a better understanding of the factors affecting climate change. This leads to new innovative responses to tackle the challenges the world faces. To explore what these latest trends could mean for not only the Humber, but the entire planet, I spoke with Professor Emerita Lynn Frostig, Honorary Fellow at the Energy Environment Institute at the University of Hull. She's also on the board of the UK Environment Agency, but spoke to us in her capacity as a researcher.
9: Currently, we're heading for probably a, a two-degree rise. It could be more. It could be up to four degrees is the worst-case scenario. For us, that could mean, um, around this area, maybe a one-metre or up to a two-metre rise in sea level, uh, rise in the incident or incidence of storms, big storms, which could lead to flooding around the coast and up the estuary. Um, and that's going to have a huge effect on all of us in particularly in this area because um, the area around the Humber is the second most vulnerable area in the country to flooding next to London. London of course has a large barrier Um, the Humber does not so that's something which in the future and it will have to be evaluated and will be evaluated as will all sorts of other interventions in order to make the area resilient to that climate effect. But at the moment, we're not going to be, step, be stepping aside from a two-degree rise, probably. And if it's four degrees, it's very dramatic.
1: And what sort of time scales are estimated for that increase?
9: Up to 2100 is when we're talking about, in general, most researchers consider that a lot of that will be set in stone by 2100. Um, whatever we do to stop emitting carbon dioxide now, because this particular rise is, well, we know it's due to human interference, human use of um, fossil hydrocarbons, uh, which puts lots of carbon dioxide into the atmosphere. And this is the biggest and fastest increase, or the fastest increase in carbon dioxide that's ever been recorded or ever been known. In the past, we've had increases in carbon dioxide, but they've been natural and they've been much slower. And organisms uh, have time to adapt. At the moment, it's happening so quickly. Adaptation is difficult, but we've got to do it. And the aim of the Paris Agreement, which a lot of people will know about, was that countries would reduce their emissions of carbon dioxide and this would restrict the rise to under two degrees which is the critical rise. We can't dodge the bullet now, Um, it's coming at us and we've got to deal with it. It dwarfs absolutely everything and in my view it is a climate emergency. Um, It's not just through extinction of species which um, tends to be the thing that people actually sort of focus on. It's our own species as well. It's the viability of where we live. It's the viability of how we live into the future, given what we think is going to happen. And those predictions now are becoming firmer and firmer as time goes on, as we collect more data. The reason why sea level rise is much higher than people thought it would be is because up until very recently, there wasn't enough data on the Antarctic to tell you what was going to happen if the Antarctic started to melt. Well, parts of the Antarctic are already melting and faster than we predicted they would. And so they're now factoring in the Antarctic ice melt where the majority of our land ice is, and that will make sea level rise faster.
1: So I guess as things warm, there's sort of an accelerator effect, sort of exponential effects that as things get warmer, things start to happen faster.
9: Yes, that's, that's another problem. Um, as you start to melt ice, you have an effect which is, which is sort of acceleratory because ice is white, snow is white, and it reflects the sun rays back. If you actually start getting rid of the ice, you get rid of that effect and you get darker surfaces, and the darker surfaces absorb the heat and then radiate it back. So you've got, you've got that extra added effect not just of the melting but of the accelerated melting because you've got dark surfaces everyone will have seen this when there's snow as soon as you get a patch of dark on a path or something it melts away from that patch because of the warmth of the patch in the sun so that's one of the accelerator effects which which is happening Um, as the Antarctic melts that's affecting a lot of our And then the Arctic as well, that's melting, but that's not affecting sea level rise because it's sea ice. Uh, But as the Antarctic melts, so it's affecting all of the ocean currents. And the Arctic melting is starting to affect all of the ocean currents in the north as well as the south. And changes in those ocean currents, which redistribute the heat around the globe, is really going to affect a lot of people.
1: The dramatic scale of ice reduction at the poles was made forcefully in February's World Economic Forum annual meeting in Davos this year by Professor Gail Whiteman, director of the Pentland Centre for Sustainability in Business. She recently co-authored a paper on a framework for assessing the economic impacts of Arctic change.
3: The Arctic is an incredibly important system. So just like the Amazon are the lungs of the world, the Arctic is like our circulation system and feeds in to global climate change everywhere. Science also tells us that the Arctic is in crisis. We know, based on observational data, that we have lost 50% of Arctic ice in about 50 years. So just when the World Economic Forum was starting, the Arctic was very white, and over that time period, it is increasingly blue. Now, why would we care? Well, we care because of the albedo effect, and that is a thing in climate science where if something is white, it bounces off sunlight back out into the atmosphere, and it doesn't absorb. As the Arctic Ocean and and the glaciers have melted, we see that dark blue is absorbing more and more heat, which is feeding through the rest of the system. We also know that that the Arctic ice is fracturing is getting thinner, I said we've lost 50% of it, but in terms of old ice, we've lost close to 95%, the vast majority of it. That is a huge concern for Arctic science. In terms of sea ice volume, the picture is even worse. Since the 1970s, we have lost 75% of the volume of Arctic summer sea ice. If you think of that as the insurance policy for the rest of the world, to prevent catastrophic runaway climate change, we are in trouble. When we look at glacier melt, we can see that it is is tremendous. The the glacier sheet in Greenland has lost 4 trillion metric tons since 2002. In one day alone, in in 2019, August 1st, we lost uh, enough melt in the glacier to to fill 4.4 million Olympic-sized swimming pools. Tremendous change happening in Greenland. We also see, though, that, that the Arctic is white, it's greening, and then we can see that the permafrost is, 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 is thawing. Now, permafrost, of course, releases methane, which is a concentrated CO2 gas. And if all the permafrost in the Arctic is released, that is like adding in the CO2 emissions of all EU countries. It's a sobering, sobering thought.
1: The impact of climate change on the ocean and life in and around it is enormous. Greenpeace operates a research vessel called Arctic Sunrise on a series of pole-to-pole legs, investigating different aspects of environmental impact. I climbed aboard to meet the deputy project leader, Ranka Krugel, just before it set sail for Antarctica from Cape Town in South Africa.
8: So it's quite clear, and the science says this too, that if the ocean's die, for lack of a less dramatic word, we die as a species, the oceans act as the second lung of the planet, which is not as well known as the forests of the world, but along with the forest, the ocean captures just as much carbon. Um, It's also known as as blue carbon, Um, so in the sediments of the oceans and um, in, in literal marine Feces, the the, uh, carbon is captured and taken down to the ocean floor and as the oceans warm up from the climate crisis and and ocean currents slow down or is um, fundamentally changed the threat to humanity is the, is a the release of this carbon back into the atmosphere so it's very very clear that if we do not utilize this historic opportunity and put a strong robust oceans treaty in place that's going to regulate and protect the oceans we are missing out on a chance to continue life as we know it on this planet
1: And here in Cape Town, it's sort of the, you know, waterway to the Antarctic and we're seeing accelerating climate change, increasingly more and more organisations accepting a climate emergency. So how does the Antarctic come into the spotlight as it looks like that's going to be the major source of uh, water ice melt to increase sea levels in the coming years?
8: Yeah, the Antarctic is quite a unique biodiversity spot. So in terms of cryosphere, I believe it's, it's got the, the largest, biggest amount or percentage of, of frozen um, water in the world. And therefore, it's also the most threatened, right? So as, as the climate breaks down and, and, and the warming accelerates, which, incidentally, with every single report that's released, the latest having been the IPCC report on oceans and cryosphere, every single report just showcases how we have underestimated, or how science has underestimated, the accelerated rate with which these uh, the destruction is happening. So. Um, the Antarctic and and, and and over and above all of that the Antarctic is also a, a biodiverse area and a, a place where a lot of the species are only found in the Antarctic so really for lack of a better term that is going to be the battleground where we are that's that's going to be the last stance for us to just take a stand and say this is this is the this needs protection and like we, we As humanity, we absolutely do not have another choice right now. We have to get in place this United Nations Oceans Treaty where we have a robust and protective legislation in place that can be reinforced. And
1: uh, from an individual, your personal perspective, you're, you're clearly making your time here to work with Greenpeace to fight for these issues. How concerned, angry are you about the current situation we find ourselves in?
8: Huh... So I do absolutely suffer from climate grief. I can definitely, at times, f- feel the emotional impact of working in this field and being aware of what the science is telling us, etc. So I'm concerned, and I'm, I feel panicky at times. But I, I also want to reiterate very clearly that there is hope, and that there is a chance for regeneration and because nature the oceans are nature but nature overall on land as well nature is extremely resilient and adaptive so if we really made an effort to reduce the impact of our human activities on this on the natural world i have no doubt that the natural world will come back in full force and stronger because it's adapt or die right so personally What i would love to see is for humanity to step up to take responsibility and accountability and to put in place protective measures and legislation that will allow for these things to happen for it will allow a chance for nature to regenerate it will allow for future generations to live a sustainable and continued existence on this planet because in effect we It is the natural world that is threatened, but the knock on effect of that is that it is our our existence, our very existence as humanity on this planet that is under threat that we cannot continue to live in this way because it isn't sustainable, it simply is not so for future generations to know the sort of life that you and I currently know, we have to we have to take responsibility and to change our ways, so yeah, I feel very deeply for this campaign and I feel like it's, it has the potential and it does connect every single one of us. Whether you live in a landlocked city or whether you spend some time in the ocean every single day, it affects all of us equally. The Waterline Live.
0: Join the climate conversation with Jonathan Levy.
1: So what impact is Antarctic warming having on the climate? its last summer has seen record temperatures in a relative heat wave. To explore this, I spoke with a Chinese geology and climate scientist currently based in Melbourne. Jing Min has been studying current trends in terms of global climate change and the localised impact of Antarctic ice sheet melting on warmer and drier weather conditions that led to Australia's intense and devastating bushfires.
2: Uh, Regarding to Antarctica... There's not much pollution from mm-hmm. the um, lower latitudes um, to, to there because of the the, the remote uh, remoteness and the uh, in in to some extent it is isolated from the populated area and the uh, there's a barrier of uh, atmosphere it's called the polar uh, vortex
3: mm-hmm.
2: which will uh, barrier the pollution to be transported there. And uh, the warming is uh, is, uh, is a primary concern, um, especially the, the some warming events. Now we are uh, looking at the uh, sudden uh, stratospheric warming. Um, usually, the temperature in the strat- stratosphere is like uh, minus seventy degree. Now, just now, since uh, September. It rise to minus twenty, and this kind of warming came coming from the mesosphere through down through the troposphere. That was uh, devastating and uh, we are looking we are keeping an eye on it we are looking at we're we, we, we looking at the data from NOAA and from the Bureau of Meteorologic in Australia and uh, we're, we're, we're looking at and what happens next. And um, if the snow and the ice melt on the uh, glacier, there will be more water, more water flow on the ice surface, and the water flow will erode, um, erode the, the, the glacier surface and will cause more melting. And uh, the, the, the warm water uh, injected into the uh, the South Ocean Will be uh, shake the, the foundation of the glacier um, uh, drawn inside of the ocean. So the, it, then, the will cause the 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 um, the, collapse, the the collapse of the of the ice shelf. Now uh, some ice shelf was uh, separate, was separated already from the um, uh, the, the the ice sheet and uh, some is uh, ongoing this procedure so um, this procedure can hardly be uh, inverted to a good direction uh, which uh, to, to to the direction which we expected so this is the status of it
1: mm. and and the mm. trend in um these higher temperatures being experienced in Australia, does this look like it is a part of a global warming trend which will continue?
2: In my understanding, it's not because of global warming. It's about the warming in Antarctica. If the air is warming over Antarctica, then the ice will be, um, be melted. and uh, If other ice melted, then uh, they, there's some uh, southern uh, annual motor will be be uh, If that's a negative, then that means that in Australia the climate will be drier and warm in summer. So that, that means more fires
1: and uh, uh, le- uh, less of uh, uh, precipitation. It's a link. The South African Cape is also experiencing higher temperatures and reduced rainfall. Rural areas of the Eastern Cape have seen extreme drought. In the western area, the city of Cape Town narrowly missed extensive rationing by encouraging the public and businesses to restrict water usage, resulting in a 50% saving in demand. Ironically, low-lying parts of redeveloped coastal areas will be vulnerable to rising sea levels. One of the organisations closely involved in working with local businesses on this and other green economy opportunities and challenges is Green Cape, I met Claire Pengelly, their water programme manager, during a visit to the country before the current coronavirus travel restrictions.
5: So, I mean, we we really did experience an an extreme water crisis um, and obviously the messaging and the campaign around that was termed day zero, which was when the city would effectively forcibly ration about 75% of the city down to 25 liters per person per day. So you would no longer receive water out of your taps, you would actually have to queue for it at a collective uh, uh, water collection point. Um, But because of that messaging and because of that campaign, the demand was driven down in such an extreme manner that we managed to effectively avoid day zero, as it was termed. And this situation came about because of three consecutive years of extremely poor rainfall. Um, And in fact, 2017 um, was the worst rainfall we have ever had on record. And the city of Cape Town is entirely reliant, or 98% reliant, on uh, rain-fed dams. Uh, so without a diversified water resource portfolio, if I can say that, uh, because we just had such extraordinary uh, low rainfall over such an extended period, we were left with a situation where it looks like we may actually run out of water in our dams.
1: And Is this a blip, or is this now an ongoing trend in terms of reduced rainfall?
5: Uh, Interesting question, so it's, in fact, we've just compiled the rainfall records at the end of our hydrological year, is actually the end of October, and we had below average rainfall for 2018, and we've had below average rainfall for 2019, so we're actually currently looking at five years of droughts um, in the city. We're not facing the same situation as we were within 2017 uh, because demand has reduced so dramatically. But what we are seeing is that um, this drying trend is gonna continue probably into the future. In terms of the kind of climate change projections we're seeing for this region, you know, looking forward 20, 30, 40 years, we could see a reduction in rainfall as much as 25 to 30 percent. So I think it really is, although we can't say exactly what the short term or the next few years are going to look like, in terms of the me- in terms of the medium to long term, we certainly do expect more droughts of this uh, nature to occur and probably at a, a even greater
1: intensity. And so you've you brought about the resilience uh, around this through, uh, I guess, changing public habits in their use of water, industry as well, no doubt, and also diversifying sources of water, such as desalination.
5: Exactly, so Green Cape's role within the drought response, because it was obviously a very multifaceted um, approach, we largely worked with businesses and we primarily focused on the industrial sector. So because we've got quite a, a strong technical skills base here at Green Cape, we would actually work with those industries that were most water intense. So trying to help them figure out how can they reduce their consumption um, as rapidly as possible while still making it sure that it makes fi- some f- form of financial sense for them. And we've actually seen incredible success from that. So even even within the, uh, the the few years of the drought crisis, we saw, And when I talk about water-intense businesses, I'm talking like construction, textiles, agri-processing, etc. We saw some of those businesses actually reduce their consumption by over 40%. Um, in terms of what the city is doing um, to ensure that this kind of situation never occurs into the future they've actually just recently um, released a water strategy Cape Town's water strategy and a key component of that is the diversification of supply so um, they they have acknowledged and are anticipating that supply is going to have to come from a multitude of different sources so large-scale desalination is in that plan reuse so actually directly reusing the the wastewater uh, that that comes out of some of the wastewater treatment plants as as well as uh, groundwater uh, as well so there's there's a, a number of different projects that are either underway or being proposed to actually um, be accelerated to ensure that we are not entirely reliant on our dams as, as a source of supply
1: as an urban area you've got quite a focus of resource here but as you go out away from here and particularly to the east of the Cape The reports are of quite dire situations, how how bad is it in some of those more rural communities?
5: I think it's it's pretty desperate. So I mean, that's I mean, like you said, in in many ways, Cape Town is blessed with a coastline. So desalination, if a worst comes to the worst, you always have that option. Whereas a lot of these communities, first of all, actually you don't necessarily have the financial resources to quickly build and and implement something, nor the kind of skills and capacity to do so. But also, they frankly may not have the resources available. So if you are unable to to reach the sea, you're like likely looking at groundwater. Um, um, supplies. And after m- many, many years of drought, those groundwater resources are, are likely, have been highly diminished and are therefore no longer reliable supply. Um, so we are looking at these kind of smaller rural communities in the Eastern Cape and even some of the larger cities like Nelson Mandela Bay, etc., as really facing quite a severe uh, water
1: crisis. So in some of those areas, are we looking at potential extreme conditions, drought, famine, uh, and I guess, ultimately fatalities.
5: That is certainly. Uh, I ho- we hope that fatalities are not the the end circumstance. Obviously, it's the usually the agriculture sector that's the the hardest hit, um, and there you are obviously seeing the you know the you know crop failures, livestock kill, culls, etc. Um, but we would hope that that you know because there are reasonably well-developed humanitarian efforts within South Africa, there wouldn't be any actual deaths, etc., from that. Um, uh, Certainly no instances of starvation, etc., in comparison to perhaps other countries north of South Africa, but it's certainly, from an economic perspective, is quite dire for a number of the farmers that operate in
1: those communities. And, and how certain can you be about some of those models and predictions? Because you sit here at this balance between Indian Ocean and um, Antarctic influences. We're seeing an acceleration of Antarctic ice melt. Um, so are there uh, any uh, analysis of, of, of sort of like the, the worst and best case scenarios? I mean, it
5: is, it is a very tricky region to model. Um, so, Cape Town and its surrounding areas has what's called a Mediterranean climate, and there are Mediterranean climates all over the world that are experiencing very similar types of conditions. You know, whether it's in California or in Mediterranean, um, in the Mediterranean itself, or even in um, in Australia, and there seems to be almost this 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 trickiness around how to actually predict what's going to happen in these in these particular regions. So not not easy to model uh, certainly from the climate scientists that I've spoken to, but they're having to come up with some more definitive predictions of what what about what we can expect in the future. And I think they're being um, I think the 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 approach that's now been taken by a lot of the government officials is to almost plan for the worst, right? So that they've got the the resources in their back pockets that they need to that they could pull the trigger on if they need to. So for example the likes of the groundwater projects and the desalination projects and the reuse projects here in Cape Town they may not actually be always be operating or they may not always operate at full scale but it'll almost be the reserve that will need to be pulled into a drought situation. So I think there's an acknowledgement that we need to be much more rapid in our ability to respond to extreme events and that takes a different shift in terms of the way that we plan. So we know that the climate models are not 100% accurate, but we know that the climate is changing, so we have to be better prepared for what is to come.
1: In other parts of Africa, such as the Sahel, the band which stretches across the southern boundary of the Sahara, extreme weather and drought has been taking its toll. This is what Hindu Ibrahim, a geographer and environmental activist from Chad, told the World Economic Forum panel on averting a climate apocalypse.
6: So that lead to the community to fight among themselves just to get the access of these resources that shrinking. This is today. This is our reality. When forests is burning in Australia, in Amazon, it's forests that disappearing. But in my region in Sahel, it's people that dying dying because of the climate change losing them life who do not think about the future so when the fight you hear about the migrations who become more and more they migrate just to get adapt to get access to the resources and that's also what's happening the last months in burkina faso in mali in nigeria and going on and on. The people who live in harmony among themselves between pastoralists and farmers, now they are fighting. So the nature who protect us become an enemy for the peoples. That's how we are experiencing it every day. And that changed the social life of man and women together. And we get more the impact, the severe. So the action, I think it needs to happen now. And that's also why the company act is good. Chinese acting is good. But are we acting now? Are we acting for the real peoples? If we are doing it, yes. So don't talk about zero net by 2050. Talk about acceleration today. Change your policies. Change your business. So you need to listen from us, learn from us and get your business sustainable. You cannot kill your partners because for us the nature is our partners, we protect it. And for you, you need to protect your business and listen to us. We help you to do that.
1: You're listening to The Waterline Live, a podcast on climate change from Marketing Humber. Carbon dioxide produced by Fossil Fuels Is seen as the primary culprit in retaining heat in the atmosphere, warming seas, melting ice, rising sea levels, impacting jet streams and ocean currents, producing extreme weather events, floods, droughts and fires, even in the Arctic. The focus is therefore on alternative renewable energy sources and new generation systems, as well as carbon capture to eliminate harmful emissions and there is much work underway through the Waterline initiative by cross-sector partners in the Humber area of the UK to tackle these challenges. At a time when Britain has marked its longest period of having all coal-fired power stations offline not contributing electricity in the national grid, and the renewable share at a record high, there are many countries around the world which are finding it difficult to reduce their consumption of rich reserves of domestic coal. The World Economic Forum annual meeting in Davos debated these issues and the future impact on global economies, in terms of the required investment in new and alternative technologies, in addition to the revenue opportunities that are emerging. Ma Jun is a Chinese environmentalist, environmental consultant and journalist. He's a director of the Institute of Public and Environmental Affairs and he highlighted that in countries like China, relative progress takes the form of reducing the growth of coal rather than eliminating it. He followed an address by Greta Thunberg, which we'll come to later, a hard act to follow.
4: Yeah, I think uh, I I greatly salute uh, uh, Greta's uh, efforts because it it has helped to vastly increase uh, the public awareness globally I think the public must play a vital role you know, if we want to avert a climate uh, crisis. And this is quite evident in China, you know, uh, during this uh, economic development in China, just like in the West, our fossil fuel uh, consumption have vastly increased. Uh, from the year 2000 to 2011, just 11 years, our coal consumption has been tripled, burning half of the world's coal. Mm-hmm. And the original projection is for that volume to be doubled before we peak by 2040 thinking about this is uh, going to not sustainable at all and but chinese people you know our citizens made their voice heard you know when beijing and the surrounding regions suffered from long stretch of smoggy days demanding for clean air uh, millions of, uh, of citizens uh, made on social media. And then the government responded uh, by, started monitoring and disclosed PM 2.5, and then rolled out a national clean air action plan. And I'm happy to report, you know, through all this public-private partnership, uh, during the past seven years, uh, Beijing's uh, PM 2.5, you know, the fine particles concentration, have dropped from 90 micrograms to 42 last year so more blue skies and during the process the toughest issues of coal you know China's coal consumption increase have been brought to a abrupt stop last 7 years not much increase at all stagnated but that's not enough you know our mission have not been accomplished we're still burning half of the world's coal and we need to do more but now at this moment you know we're facing the economic downturn locally And globally we're facing the trade war and also the withdrawal by the u.s government from the paris agreement all these are not helpful so we need to find innovative solutions uh, which you know uh, tap into the market power which can balance growth and uh, and protection but all this need people to join the efforts so with
1: that i truly salute the efforts to raise public awareness Mm -hmm. Despite the emerging COVID-19 pandemic, the World Economic Forum annual meeting was relatively unaware of the looming global economic crisis it would create. The big risk analysis was on climate change. This is what their president, Borger Bender, had to say.
10: In 15 uh, years, in our risk report, when we look at the 10 years outlook, um, climate change and environmental uh, risks... Um, are five out of five when it comes to likeliness in the report and four out of five when it comes to impact. So climate change, loss of biodiversity, water scarcity is um, the major long-term risk. The planet is heating, uh, the ice is melting, and we see that the library of species are on fire. And we have to take this really, really serious. And we have to change our approach. The cost of inaction today far exceeds the cost of action. That's why we now have to start to implement the necessary uh, policies uh, to deal with climate change.
1: Which brings us back to Greta Thunberg. Just a year earlier, she emerged into the global spotlight at Davos with her defining speech to delegates that our house is on fire. This is some of what she had to say 12 months later at the New York Times session on averting a climate apocalypse.
11: The facts are clear, but they are still too uncomfortable for you to address. You just leave it because you just think it's too depressing and people will give up but people will not give up. You are the ones who are giving up. Last week, I met with Polish coal miners who lost their jobs because their mine was closed. And even they had not given up. On the contrary, they seem to understand the fact that we need to change more than you do. I wonder, what will you tell your children was the reason to fail and leave them facing a climate chaos that you knowingly brought upon them? That it seemed so bad for the economy that we decided to resign the idea of securing future living conditions without even trying? Our house is still on fire. Your inaction is fueling the flames by the hour. And we are telling you to act as if you loved your children above all else. Thank you.
1: And now we have the global COVID-19 coronavirus pandemic, but this may actually create a new context for climate change. Let's return to my conversation with Claire Nullis from the UN's World Meteorological Organisation and the impact of the global shutdown on the environment.
0: There are two different aspects uh, of carbon dioxide equation that we need to talk about here. So one is carbon dioxide concentrations, and that is what we at the World Meteorological Organization measure. Now, that is what stays in the atmosphere after CO2 has been absorbed by the oceans and by the biosphere, so that's, you know, trees, vegetation. and co2 stays in the atmosphere for many 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 decades um so regardless of any industrial and economic downturn during the ongoing pandemic that will not have an immediate impact on carbon dioxide concentrations, and that's purely because of the laws of physics. You know, it, it is it is something which has a very, very, very long life in the atmosphere and even longer in the oceans. So moving on, um, we have carbon dioxide emissions, and that's the net new emissions which come from industrial activity, from transport, um, uh, uh, you know, from, from human, human activities in terms of emissions uh yes there has uh, been a downturn uh, this this year um the figures aren't very precise yet you know there are projections estimates of you know how big the emissions might fall by the end of this year it's we're a little bit cautious about quantifying it at this uh, at this stage because a lot of what happens will depend on when we have the economic recovery. It depends on how carbon intensive that recovery will be. So, just to give you a practical example, if um, you know, if the if the the, the city of Hull or if uh, Newcastle or London um, says, okay, the the peak of the health crisis is over we now need to stimulate the economy with the number of uh, economic recovery packages if those recovery packages give incentives to to fossil fuels rather than you know green energy then we'll be no better off than we were before but if we use the covid-19 pandemic as a wake-up call that we need to have more sustainable, environmentally friendly development, then the trajectory of carbon dioxide emissions in the coming years could look very different indeed. And I think that is the main message that we at the World Meteorological Organization and the United Nations have as a whole is that we need to show... Unity in tackling both the coronavirus pandemic plus the longer-term problem of climate change. Um, we have the solutions. Uh, we know of the solutions, and we need this to be based on science. Um, but we really do, you know, we really do need unity. And we would say, yes, you know, we do have COVID as as an immediate problem. It's you know, it's had absolutely tragic appalling global effects um climate change is potentially with us you know with us for centuries and you know we now have the opportunity to to take action on 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 this
1: i think it was your secretary general said in the same way as we're trying to flatten the curve of the pandemic we should be uh, aiming to do the same for climate change
0: yes we need to flatten both curves um the COVID pandemic has obviously had a very steep curve in a number, of, uh, a number of countries, and fortunately in some countries that is now being flattened and even being reduced. Um, climate change, we've seen similarly steep curves in a number of climate indicators, such as temperatures, such as sea level rise, such as glacier retreat. Uh, it's going to take more time to flatten that, those curves. Um, but we can do it and we certainly need to do it. And so there are a lot of lessons that we can learn from the COVID pandemic that, you know, really by pulling together as one, by acting with unity and based on science, you know, we can we can indeed flatten the, the long term climate change curve.
1: So going forward, not over just the next five years, but probably the next um, 15 years. Uh, to, to, to fifty years, what indicators in particular are the WMO keeping a very close eye on? Uh,
0: in terms of the climate indicators, uh, we will be keeping a close eye on carbon dioxide concentrations because that is what is driving climate change, uh, and we really do need to you know put a cap on them and to flatten the curve and start to uh, start you know seeing these concentrations level off um we obviously will be monitoring temperature increase uh, obviously not every year we'll see a new temperature record but the trend is definitely rising um, but also a big focus of our work and that of the united nations is on climate change adaptation so you know how do we help societies and communities adapt to um adapt to climate change based on science so for instance in the you know in the in the, in the humber region it's learning to live with the reality of of rising sea levels um, uh, Netherlands is, is a good example of, you know, how they're in, investing in much more robust coastal infrastructure. Um, there are nature based solutions uh, such as, you know, using more uh, restoring mangroves in, in tropical, tropical areas. So a lot of our focus um, will be on how to help, you know, countries and communities that adapt to, adapt to climate change.
1: And as far as the industries in the Humber who are also doing their bit to uh, reduce carbon, what would your message be to them? Even though it might appear to be a, a very big ask,
0: I think when the political will is there, um, a way will be found to achieve it, to achieve it. And the UK obviously is showing great political will at the moment and leadership on the on climate change, um, and this will filter down um, at, at, at all levels. So I think, you know, keep keep up the good
1: work. <laughs> Go for it. To finish with, a contribution to the debate from a sobering perspective, the International Space Station. This is what European Space Agency astronaut Luca Pamiatano had to say to his Earthbound audience.
0: said, this is Mission Control Houston. Please call station for a voice check. Thank you, Luca.
7: Welcome. Thank you for having me uh participate today welcome on board the international space station it's a great pleasure to be here w- with you can you tell us how do you see the planet and how the fact that you have seen it from there has changed your own perception about the risks of climate change i can tell you that our planet is incredibly beautiful we also see its incredible fragility in the six years that uh, that have passed since I was here the first time and and this year, I have seen with my own eyes that the effects, the terrible effects of climate change. Our planet is, is our only one. We don't have another choice right now. The planet Earth is is the one planet that we have, and we are all in this one planet. We are all astronauts in a way because Earth is a, is a spacecraft floating in space. And it's the only place that can give us hope and and can give us life. So we we have to do something and I think all astronauts believe that, have expressed the same feeling of uh, wonder at the beauty of Earth and desperation at seeing its fragility.
1: You've been listening to The Waterline Live. If you'd like to hear more of the interviews we've included in this edition, we'll be posting some extended versions over the next few weeks. This is Jonathan Levy, and until next time, thanks for listening.
6: The
0: Waterline Live. Join the climate conversation with Jonathan Levy. A Blue Aurora Media Production for Marketing
8: Humber.